Hi, I'm gonna keep this short and sweet. KRCL is truly grateful for the outpouring of support over the past 40 plus years. Here's to another 40 plus with your continued support. Consider making a year-end tax-deductible donation today at krcl.org. Thanks. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Why do I introduce the show that way? Because I think it reflects the spirit of what we try and do here at Radioactive and KRCL in general since 1979, and that is build things up in the community in a progressive, leaning way. So tonight on the show, we're going to be talking art. We're going to be talking opioid addiction and an opportunity to take some money from opioid settlements coming to Utah to address the issue over the next 18 years, frankly. Also, the YCC Family Crisis Center needs your help. And we've got some artists in residence to talk about and an art market happening at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art this weekend. We're going to start, though, with grassroots activists. Former Salt Lake City Council person DDC joining me via Zoom. Hey, Dita, how are you? I am good. And I want to tell you that I started listening to KRCL in uh, 1980. Wow. You're a a long hauler, so to speak. I'm old. (laughs) But in a good way, in a very, very good way. Well, right on. So let's talk about one of the causes that you are involved in, and that's Stop the Polluting Port. And last week, I didn't have time to get into the show. So here we are to talk about the latest developments that you and uh, the Center for Biological Diversity and the Stop the Polluting Port Coalition and other groups are keeping an eye on data. What's happening? Well, so what's happening is that the um, Utah Inland Port Authority is getting ready to spend a, an awful lot, millions and millions in uh, taxpayer uh, dollars to facilitate the, the development of this polluting port. Um, and it's, so, of course, we're very, very concerned about this. Um, we're concerned because it's our money that's going toward this. And we're also concerned because we, the public, are not getting good information about the specifics regarding how this money is going to be spent. They had a quarterly meeting last week, I believe. Yes, they did. And um, what was really appalling about this meeting was that uh, they spent the first 45 minutes in a closed session. So, of course, the public is excluded from that. And then when they came back into regular session, um, they were so behind on their schedule Um, they eliminated public comment from the agenda. And we had uh, easily 20 people who were prepared to speak to the issues I was just talking about in terms of how are you spending our money and um, what protections are in place in terms of preventing environmental harm and all of those kinds of things. And they didn't take any public comment, but they did make time to show a a truly appalling five minute long propaganda video um, that was is just frankly offensive. So it was an extremely frustrating meeting for the public, um, but we are very tenacious. (laughs) We've been at this um, watchdogging and critiquing this project for coming up on four years next March. Um, and we're not giving up now. So yeah. uh, we're going to push on. And um, we're looking at legal options. Um, we're looking at allies um, 
at Salt Lake City, um, we have two new council members. Um, we're reaching out to Salt Lake County Mayor Jenny Wilson. So we're exploring every avenue um, in terms of making sure that these people who are the architects of this terrible project um, are held accountable. And what is your take on holding this body accountable, given the unique way it came about? Obviously, you're the loyal opposition, Dita. So uh, holding them to account to make things public seems like it's, it's, it's become the task, that uh, the thankless task that you're doing for the public. What, what are the challenges here with this body in making things public in a timely fashion so the public has a chance to respond whether or not they get the chance to in these quarterly meetings? Um, well, the challenge is that this, you know, and I just at the beginning of this conversation told you that I've been listening to KRCL since 1980. So, uh, which is really when I moved to Utah, um, you know, over the course of my long career, this instance, the Utah Inland Port Authority um, is the, it, the worst example I've ever seen in terms of um, accountability and transparency. So they are hiding things from the public in the most egregious way I've ever experienced in my long career. And you know the, what, what we're doing to counter that is um, organizing robust political uh, community opposition. Um, Salt Lake City sued the Port Authority and, and the state of Utah, and that case is making its way through the courts. Um, it's now at the Utah Supreme Court, and there could be a decision any day, literally, um, from the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court decides, the Utah Supreme Court decides in favor of Salt Lake City, um, that means that the Utah Inland Port Authority ceases to exist. And that would be a huge victory for us. So that's one angle we're pursuing. Also, our members were very active in the recent Salt Lake City um, council elections. And there are two new council members um, from District 1 and 2 on Salt Lake City's west side. And uh, they both we we um, had a survey, a candidate survey that we sent out to candidates. They, they both filled out the survey on inland port issues, and they're both very, um, very skeptical about this project. And I think it sounds like, at least from their survey responses, that they're going to be willing to, to push back um, and to, to demand accountability from the Utah Inland Port Authority. So those are those are two good things that have happened recently um, that are very helpful to us and hopeful. So the inland port um, created by the Utah legislature, I don't even remember how many sessions ago. It feels like it's always been here, frankly, now, Dita. And I'm curious, the milestones as we march towards the next general session of the Utah legislature in January for the Stop the Polluting Port Coalition. What are you looking toward organizing around? How can people get involved? Yeah. Um, well, so we have a web a web page, stopthepollutingport.org, and on that web page, um, we have lots of information about what we've done. We have a press release from what happened last week. 
we have an events tab that has a link to our weekly Thursday night meeting that everyone's invited to. So that's how people can get involved. What we're looking toward um, in the legislative session is more probably more legislation around the Utah Inland Port Authority. Um, we've heard rumors that the legislative leaders may want to further cut back Salt Lake City's representation on the Port Authority board. Of course, we'll fight that. Um, and that's just ridiculous. Uh, the other thing that we're going to be pursuing is working to make sure that the federal Biden administration knows that they should not be directing any federal infrastructure money toward this polluting project. And we heard at the meeting last week that the Port Authority is going to be seeking federal infrastructure money. So we are launching a petition. Um, we don't have it up yet, but we will. We have people working on the language. We will have it up soon. And it's going to be a petition to the Biden administration that basically says, don't give any federal money to the Utah Inland Port Authority. Um, and so those are, those are the things that we're looking at. And then we're still fighting very hard um, to, to get the Port Authority to give us information about really what they intend to do with the, with the tax dollars that they currently have to work with. They're talking about building a transloading facility in Salt Lake City. We want to see um, what, the, what they exactly intend to do with that and an analysis of the potential environmental harm before anything gets built. Dita, what's the website one more time for your organization? So it's Stop the Polluting Port. Dita Seed, thanks for the update. Sure. And that is Dita Seed of the Stop the Polluting Port Coalition and the Center for Biological Diversity. Check tonight's show notes for links to those organizations. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. Still to come, we're going to be talking about opioids in Utah and a survey that the Utah Opioids Task Force would like you to take when it comes to spending $360 million in opioid settlement money over the next 18 years. Domestic violence shelters across the country are facing financial hardship due to a shadow pandemic of intimate partner violence that has ravaged the U.S. for almost two years. The YCC Family Crisis Center in Ogden has not only had a cut in federal funding, but has also seen a twofold demand for services as domestic violence cases continue to surge, spreading funds incredibly thin. And for the second year in a row, the YCC will not be able to hold its annual gala. So let's find out how we can help and pass that microphone. Sarah, will you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Sure. Yeah, my name is Sarah Meir, and I am the Development Director at YCC Family Crisis Center in Ogden, Utah. So what has been happening the last two years over the course of the pandemic with YCC Family Crisis and its funding? Yeah, so um, funding-wise, um, there was a big cut to VOCA, so Victims of Crime Act is a big fund um, that funds um, domestic violence shelters and um, supporters of victims um, across the country, and there was a big cut that we saw this year, um, as we said, um, as we've seen pretty much a double in calls to our crisis line now for the second year in a row. So tell us who you serve and how large your operation is. Yeah, so we serve um, all genders, um, anyone who has been affected uh, by domestic violence or sexual assault um, can come to our organization. Um, we have 62 beds. 
um, which are, have been pretty much maxed out for the past two years. Um, and when people come um, and we're at capacity, we do our best to connect them with other resources here in the community, or sometimes even um, we've done um, hotel stays. So we have some partnerships with hotels here in the area so that we don't have to turn anyone away. And I think a lot of people think this problem is confined to the capital city, but it happens in every community and no yeah. one is immune from domestic violence, unfortunately. Yeah. Two yeah. years ago, you raised $75,000 for your year-end gala and then COVID hit and you haven't been able to fundraise that way. And this year you have a pretty heavy lift. You need to raise $150,000. And I understand you have mm-hmm. a unique Heart of Ogden campaign you're trying to use to meet this gap. Yeah, we are. Um, We started it last year because last year was the first year we couldn't have our gala. Um, So we got creative. We're like, what can we do to get people outside, learn about YCC, spread some love and hope around our community? Because it was pretty rough that first year through um, the pandemic. Um, And so we created these giant conversation hearts. Um, They look like the candies that you get at Valentine's Day. Um, So on the front, they say things like peace, hope, love. I heart YCC, I heart Ogden. Um, And on the backside, um, businesses are able to sponsor these hearts. Um, So that's where the fundraiser comes in. Um, Area businesses can get involved. And we also have a QR code on the back of these hearts um, where individual donors can contribute as well and learn about YCC. Um, So we saw a lot of people actually come into shelter last year um, as a result of this. Um, because they didn't know that it was something that was available to them here. And we'll put links in the show notes about the sponsorship and the levels and things like that. But I did want to talk about your efforts last year. YCC provided 7,736 shelter nights, as well as received 5,602 crisis hotline phone calls. Was that up from years past? It is, yeah. Um, If we go pre-pandemic, so back to 2019, um, that's about double. We've sustained, um, it's been double now for 2020. And as we're wrapping up um, 2021, we're still seeing that double the numbers every, every month. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for giving us some info on what's going on with YCC Family Crisis in Ogden. And hopefully our listeners hearing this will spread the word and and help out. What's the website where they can learn more? It's uh, yccogden.org. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday season. Thank you. In our spotlight on DIY Creatives, we're going to the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art and finding out more about what's in store this weekend for an art market, but also to speak with artist-in-residence Nick Peterson, whose exhibition Slow Apocalypse is on display through the 1st of January at the museum. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. Nick, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, so I'm Nick Peterson, and I'm a photographer and digital artist based in Salt Lake City. Uh, I think all of my work is mainly focused on my experience with nature and environmental issues, Uh, thinking about the future and the effects of things like climate change and this um, Anthropocene era we're entering, which is really about the human impact on nature. And so in my work, I try to combine these elements of the man-made world and the natural world in interesting and provocative ways, um, using my own photographs, digital collage techniques, and printmaking. Um, to create these large-scale, intricate pieces um, to draw viewers in and to get them thinking about the future. Also, we have with us Andrea Tree from the Yumoka Gift Shop. Hi, Andrea. How are you? 
Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. And your gift shop always filled with great art that folks can avail themselves of. But you have an art market coming up this weekend. So stick around. I want to hear about all that. But let's go back to Nick for a second because you've got your artist in residence coming up and people can actually come to the museum. Uh, of yeah. course, COVID safe and meet yeah. you and hear more. So talk to me a little bit more about the Anthropocene. First of all, I never know if I'm saying it right. <laughs> so Anthropocene, an age of human impact yeah. on the natural world. Yes. Um, how has it been received so far? Because it's been hanging for a couple of weeks. What are you oh, been it's hearing? Been, it's been great. Um, people are really into it. I think over the course of the residency, I wanted to go in a bit of a different direction with my work, um, creating these large physical pieces and creating more of an immersive gallery experience. So with the title, Slow Apocalypse, it's really referring to this, these slow moving processes like climate change and uh, things like loss of habitats and environmental devastation that we're facing in the future. And so with the show, I read about this concept called the environmental uncanny, which refers to this collective denial and aversion to the reality of these things like climate change and people going about business as usual. Um, and so my idea for the show was to play off of these older styles of beauty in art making. Um, so I wanted to reference things like sublime landscape paintings, like um, Dutch still lifes and like wallpaper installations and textiles. So I had a great time over the residency experimenting with all of these different types of art and adapting my work um, to these styles and adding in these subversive and interesting elements of modern culture um, to make a statement. Um, so, so it kind of draws the viewer in with these ideas of color and composition. And then when they see the, the juxtapositions and um, sort of subversive elements of modern culture, like, like for example, with some of my wallpaper pieces, I created a series of uh, these beautiful, like idealized versions of nature showing like animals and forests and plant elements, but then also adding in elements of like oil drilling, uh, deforestation and things like that. So it has these elements that people see that are, so the full piece is familiar and beautiful on first look, and then it's unsettling and disruptive when you take a closer look. So that's been really fun for me to have viewers go into the show with one expectation of this beautiful space, but then to see all these uh, juxtapositions and details and have a different view leaving the space. Um, and hopefully my main goal is to really get people to think about the future and raise awareness about these issues. Well, also, it sounds like what I'm seeing is what we've been willing consciously or not, to compromise about the planet, about wild spaces. Like you said, all of a sudden there's this oil derrick in the middle of a, a wild landscape and such. And this right. has been a work in progress because you are an artist in residence. How fun was yes. that? Oh, it's been awesome. I, I was really sad. I, it kind of is ending now. So I, I had a great studio space um, in the museum. So I had my large format printer and a big workspace where I was able to produce all the work for the show. Um, we worked on all of these different types of like long hanging tapestry pieces and fabric textile pieces. So it's been really interesting taking my work in a new direction and meeting a lot of the other residents and working with a great group of people. Like everyone at Umoka is awesome. So I, I had a, a great time uh, being an artist in residence. Well, where does this go next? Or have you been selling the pieces as the residency <laughs> has gone along? Uh, I've gotten a lot of interest. Um, we're actually going to be selling some uh, pieces that I'm working on for the 
the gift shop at Umoka, like some uh, different prints and uh, textile pieces. Um, in the future, I'm, I'm working on a few different residencies and teaching. Um, but yeah, just kind of going along with this direction that I developed during the residency, going in a really interesting design direction with my work, um, different styles and mediums. So I'm really interested to keep going and see where that takes me. Well, Andrea Tree from Umoka, that's exciting, I'm guessing, for you as you look at how oh, having some of these pieces owned locally, perhaps. And you also have the art market coming up this weekend. Tell us what folks can see in the gift shop anyway, but then what's happening this weekend? Sure. Well, I have been working with Umoka for the past about five months. I'm their new store curator. And, uh, it's a blast. There is nothing better than calling up artists and visiting their studios and picking out things and bringing them into the store and watching them sell and then taking checks back to artists. That's really quite a marvelous experience that I'm so happy I get to be a part of. Um, on any day, you'll be able to come into the store and find various artifacts by local artists, um, nationwide artists. Uh, we have things from like knickknacks to beautiful ceramics. And like Nick said, we will be implementing some of his beautiful textiles into the store as well. As far as the holiday market, which is this weekend, the 11th and 12th from 10 a.m. till 6 p.m., we do have some special stuff planned. On Saturday morning at 1130, we will have Santa Claus here. And I am the lucky person who gets to design Santa's center. So if you don't come for Santa, just come to check out whether or not you think his center it looks good enough, because <laughs> that will make me proud. Um, but nonetheless, Santa will be reading a book, some stories to the kids. And then we're going to have a first come, first serve session with Santa. We'll have some photographers here printing out free photographs. Then Santa leaves at, at 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, and the photo booth or the Santa Center will remain set up through the entire weekend. So if anyone wants to come and take a family holiday photo or just kind of geek out on the whole photo booth setup, they're more than welcome to. We're doing free gift wrapping. We have free donut holes. We have first come, first serve golden tickets that you can uh, turn in to visit Salt Lake, which is our partner holiday uh, gift shop, which is just the shop to the south of us. And, um, oh, wow, we're going to do film screenings. We're going to have Family Arts Saturday here on Saturday, ornament making. I don't know if I can call it anything less than a party, really. And salt and honey makers market, right? Yes, it's the Salt and Honey. Salt and Honey moved their shop or moved a shop into the Visit Salt Lake. And they are doing fabulous and they carry amazing things. So this year, we decided to partner with both Salt and Honey Makers Market, Visit Salt Lake, and the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art to pull together a community holiday market where we could all synergize off of one another allow for fun to happen within the space between our centers, as well as uh, 
I am happy to do all the gift wrapping for anything that anyone purchases, even at Salt and Honey Maker's Market. Well, wonderful. What's the website where folks can check out all of this and learn more about the holiday art market at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art this weekend? I would head to utahmocha.org, and there you will be able to find all of the information you need for this weekend's holiday market. And Nick, your exhibition, Slow Apocalypse, currently on display in the museum's exit gallery through January 8th. Where can they find you online to catch up with you? Well, yeah, you can follow me online through my website or Instagram to see any of the new projects or things I'm working on. And I'm also giving an artist talk at the museum on Thursday at seven o'clock that you can register for um, at Umoka's website. That should be pretty interesting talking about my process and my work and my experience as an artist in residence. Thank you so much, Nick and Andrea. Best of the holidays to you. Thank you, you so too. much this for was having fun. us, Laura. That was a blast. Yeah, thank you. Check tonight's show notes for links to all of our guests this evening. When we come back, we'll dig into the Utah Opioid Task Force, a survey they'd like you to take on how to spend $360 million expected to come to Utah as part of just one opioid settlement. You're listening to KRCL Radioactive. Thanks to George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation for investing in KRCL and communities throughout Utah. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm, Michelle's Night Train at 10.30, and John Florence starts your brand new day each and every weekday morning at 6 a.m. You can find our entire programming schedule online at krcl.org. Click on the Programming tab, and you can listen on demand to the last two weeks of any show, including Radioactive. All right, isolation has been a key feature of the pandemic, and it's compounded issues with, like we heard earlier, domestic violence, but also opioid and other substance abuse disorders. At the same time, the Utah Opioid Task Force's Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee is preparing a guide to assist the state and local communities in utilizing funds that are expected from various opioid litigations and settlements. To find out more, let's pass that microphone. Dr. Plum, will you introduce yourself to our listeners again? Certainly. My name is Jennifer Plum. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine doc. Um, I work in the University of Utah and Intermountain Healthcare settings at Primary Children's. And I co-founded an organization that is called Utah Naloxone, which focuses on increasing awareness and education about how to prevent opioid overdose deaths. So this has been something we've been working on really directly since about July of 2015 in the program although working on it longer than that as a family who lost someone to an opioid overdose in 1996. And thank you for having me here to be able to help people think about this issue and, and frankly, think about how they can perhaps be part of solution and improvement in our communities. And as I've said before, when you've been on the show, you and I have that family loss in common and it roughly the same time, and the cycles just seem to keep repeating themselves. Adding to this conversation, we have another person in our community working on this issue. Sierra, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, okay? Sure. My name is Sierra Gregovich, and I'm, I work for the Attorney General's Office as their public health consultant regarding the opioid epidemic. Um, I, too, very much am passionate within this space, just from a professional stance, but also uh, unfortunately, the shared commonality of having somebody struggle with substance use disorder. So, um, you know, certainly occupying the space from a very personal perspective. And I feel very lucky that I'm able to. Um, 
And I feel very lucky too, to just be able to work alongside Jen, who does amazing work for the state and beyond. I think a lot of folks have seen the headlines about the uh, Sackler family and the, the cases against them as manufacturers of OxyContin. And that's kind of the last I heard about it. I know that there's money coming to the state. I don't know who wants to handle this, but uh, is it a sizable sum? And is uh, the task force the main body trying to carve up how this will be spent? Well, there's, there's still a lot to be finalized. There are several lawsuits that have been launched across the nation, different states, jurisdictions, um, who went into the realm of seeking compensation as well as, let's be honest, I think some punitive funding toward these companies who have used tactics that were at the very least irresponsible and at the very worst Um, frankly, disgusting, uh, to get their products marketed and to get people within our communities addicted to, dependent upon these substances. And those lawsuits have gone from individual companies like Purdue Pharmaceuticals to individuals like the Sackler family. Although from what I understand more recently, the individual Sacklers have received some immunity as part of the settlement's Uh, with Purdue. And there's also distributors, you know, the folks who actually ship the substances from who makes them out into the pharmacies. There have been lawsuit settlements against pharmacies, pharmaceutical chains. So there's a whole bunch of them unfolding. And there is going to be a fairly decent amount of money. There are you know, more coming. So to look at what we're looking at now, the individual settlements that were first announced as being put together and coming down the pipeline were announced in July of 2021. And they look to be somewhere in the realm of $360 million coming to Utah, which will then be, you know, figured out through the processes of what stays with the state and what goes to the counties and what goes to the local jurisdictions. But, you know, even that number alone, which acknowledging that there's not finality to it. Even that number alone looks like $18 million a year for 18 years. And that is a decent chunk of change to be able to move the ball down the field, you know, to use a cliche to, to impact some arenas that need funding, that need attention. But it also introduces a bit of chaos surrounding, you know, who can, who should, what's the best way, what core principles do we need to focus on? Um, You know, you asked about is the Utah Opioid Task Force the main entity that's uh, dealing with or addressing this, and it's certainly not. There's um, all sorts of stakeholders who are trying to find the best ways to work together in a new space. That includes, you know, departments of health and departments of commerce and the counties associations and individual legislators and the governor's office and the attorney general's office. So I think that for me, at least looking at the big broad picture, the best thing we can do as a state and as individuals who care deeply about this realm is try to assure that the core principles are there, that we keep our focus on things like transparency and evidence-based practices and, you know, what has worked in the past, what new things do we need to explore? And if we're trying new things, what ways do we document that they're actually doing what we hope they're doing? Mm -hmm. How do we uh, study those? 
And it's going to take a lot of collaboration. It's going to take a lot of partnerships. And it's also, frankly, it's going to take some trust that people are going to stick with what the main premise of these settlements is. And that is that these settlements are coming down to ameliorate the harms of opioids coming into our communities, as well as to prevent further harms. But the people that it's bite, harmed, right? the people, yeah, it is a big bite, but the people that it's harmed, the end user, shall we say, the person struggling mm-hmm. with substance abuse disorder of whatever stripe, tend to be written off by the powers Absolutely. that be, that by polite society, shall we say. And so I'm really concerned about how this money may disappear into bureaucracies, et cetera, as opposed to direct help to folks that are struggling with this, folks that we see still living on the street. And uh, public input can help with that. I understand, Sierra, that you and Jen are working on a white paper derived from the Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee to provide guidance on how settlement money should be spent. Can you talk about that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So uh, we are gathering various input, which we really hope those listening are able to help contribute and share their voice within the space of two different types of surveys. One that's going to subject matter experts who have been appointed by folks that are on our Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee, uh, who are providing some hypothetical recommendations on how to best utilize these funding. And then we also have a community-facing survey, which is where we really want to get, as you kind of mentioned, you know, the community and and people who actually know and have been impacted within this space. It's completely anonymous um, and it just gives people a safe space to express how this space has impacted them personally, whether it be, you know, an active addiction or a family member or, you know, maybe somebody who works within the space. And we're using this data essentially to create a story, to create so that people you know, who are making some decisions on how this money is allocated uh, can actually see, well, the community feels this way. Um, so we'll be extracting this data and writing a, a white paper essentially that we can share widely with all sorts of policymakers, you know, state leaders, uh, medical professionals, just so that they can understand how the community feels that this money should be utilized. Um, so I'd be more than happy to give a plug with that as well. Yeah. If you go to the utahopioidpriorities.org, um, it will show the website that Jen crafted so beautifully, and you can just click the survey link, and it it's right there and easily shareable for people to take and to share with others. I took it with like eight minutes to go to this interview starting, so you can get through it pretty quickly, but it asks, you know, what's important to the survey taker? And there's a range of things from affordable housing to detox to um, services that aren't extended to folks that are coming out of this kind of crisis. And that's kind of one of my concerns that I'm hoping you can help me address and get us talking about because we view substance disorder abuse um, as the user's fault. And there's lots of data and lots of studies talking about how addiction works in humans' brains and bodies that we just don't seem to get past. And that yet here's $18 million a year for 18 years to deal with the issue. And if, if it's only spent on detox, I'm happy. But to get us to do more than addressing the symptoms, we've got to do more, Dr. Plum. Oh, that is so, so, so true. And I think that that is one of the messages we really want to get forward to the people who have the ability to decide where funds go. 
you know, when we look at many of the mental health ailments and struggles that people have to include substance use, um, there is this thinking among many that, well, you know, just get them into treatment. It'll be cured. It'll be fixed and it'll be done. And if we can just route people through treatment, that it'll be over. And what is left out of that is there are a whole lot of pieces that come into play when we want to help people rebuild a life, rebuild a sense of health. You know, baby steps into health are something that we ask for as a society on any level, right? So whether it's blood pressure or weight or diet or, you know, even some cancer treatments, we take steps along the way to get people a little bit healthier, a little bit better, a little bit more well. And yet when it comes to some of these conditions, we don't we don't look at it that way. And we don't necessarily have the conversations about, all right, so we have someone who has stopped using a substance. This is great. This is really healthy for them. How do we keep them in a space where they still can maintain that? Well, let me tell you, one thing we do is we make sure that they are employable. What does that mean? Well, that means that they have skills. That means that they have education. That means that they have opportunity. What that also means is that any convictions that they may have had as a result of their substance use, and I'll tell you, some of these convictions are, let's just call it, they're pretty silly, right? Like that you give someone a bunch of charges uh, for having a syringe or for having a pipe or for having whatever it may be, and you build up a lot of charges and, and in the system thinks, well, you know what? You need to have accountability and you need to have results based on what you've done. You need to, you know, do, you basically need to pay for what you've done, which let's be honest, that's silly. And that's based on what the war on drugs led us down a path to do. But then when somebody gets themselves in that space where they are really healthier, well-er, and they can't get a job, they can't get a loan, they can't get an apartment they can't get a car because they can't get the loan because their credit is now shot. And so we're putting all of these big expectations on them and they have them on themselves. Trust me, as, as, as much as the expectations that we have on any individual are the folks that I know and have worked with and have loved in this space, their expectations of themselves are even higher than any of us could even try to imagine and they can't win. So what my hope is, is that as a part of this spending opportunity, we look at these spaces where- yeah. Absolutely. I'm with you. Detox beds would be a huge win. Some treatment openings would be a huge win. Although with Medicaid expansion, I really feel that we're doing pretty well in the treatment space compared relatively to where we've been in the past. We need to look at these opportunities to get people on the path to being yeah. alive. Being well, alive is more than just breathing. Yeah. It's those services that we typically in America are not willing to pay for because, you know, bootstraps. Right. right. Um, right. Some people don't have the straps, let alone the boots. So, Sarah, in the AG's office and your role in, in public health on this issue, are are we ready to start thinking outside the box, especially when it comes to this once in a lifetime opportunity that comes out of this tragedy? I mean, nationwide, according to the DEA, among new heroin users, 75 percent reported having abused prescription opioids before using heroin. These aren't people that start out in the gutter. They start out with a medical problem that leads to treatment with an opioid that leads to a reliance, a habit, an addiction. Sierra. No, absolutely. And I, you bring up an interesting point just around, you know, stigma when it comes to drug choice, right? I mean, Things that come in a bottle are far less, how should we say, 
they don't have as much stigma, right? Because it came from a medical professional and sure, they have a very valid role in treating, you know, some of these major surgeries that people undergo. But there's the statistics to show that 80% of active heroin users started with a prescription opioid. Um, And I think that that gradual, it's a very gradual change for many people. And I think that uh, we just have to get rid of the stigma as a whole, um, no matter what type of substance. Uh, With that being said, to answer your question in regards to thinking outside the box, um, you know, when Jen's talking about this $18 million a year. Um, sure, I'm thankful for any type of money that can go towards mental health or you know substance use disorder treatment. But when you really start thinking about it, um, it's not as much as it sounds. And so I think that that's really why we have to think outside the box and be strategic in how this money is allocated. And I think that we have put forth a lot of effort um, to the point of what Jen was saying of like, okay, so how can we rehabilitate people opposed to just penalizing them for their their drug use that's been you know that's been penalizing them in many ways their their entire addiction span so we have to really think like okay you know somebody's better sure they're on medical assisted treatment um, they're getting back on their feet but they have a thousand other barriers just to exist Um, and I think people who who don't even have, who struggle with like a mental illness or substance use, uh, that stuff's tricky to deal with as is. Um, And so I think this is a really good opportunity to utilize these funds wisely in a way that we can really just, I I call it almost building conditions for people to where they're going to want to maintain and sustain that recovery. Um, You know, life is hard as is. And I think that adding all those barriers. I mean, people really don't think about the types of things that folks who are just struggling have to go through, right? Well, go get a job. Okay, well, I can't. And then I also, you know, I don't qualify for a car. So I have to be getting up, you know, an extra two hours early. And then I have kids to provide for. I mean, there's, there's just, it's a heavy tax on these folks. Um, And so, you know, I just really think that we can really try to rehabilitate the many people across the state and provide those extra resources and also factor in, you know, the differences between our more populated areas versus our more rural communities and getting their input on how this money could be best utilized for the conditions that they have to go through. That may be different from somebody in Salt Lake. And we think about the need in our our rural communities. It's it's different. I mean, the, the, the circumstances that lead to it are still there, but the amount of resources are congregated in the urban areas. And so how do you get treatment in a community that doesn't have services? That's a huge thing that this um, this settlement could help uh, ameliorate. So the survey for the community to take, Sierra, how long is that up? And when can we expect this white paper? So we'll have the public-facing survey. I probably until early January um, is when we'll probably – we don't have a finalized close date for that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be able to make sure that we provide ample time for people to fill it out. Uh, and then we will be able to take that data. And we are starting to work on the white paper now. Um, we, As I said, we had a subject matter expert survey going on. And so we're starting to take the bits of that and figuring out, okay, well, what are, what are the general responses of, of these professionals? Um, that's something we're currently working on because we want to ensure that we have it ready to go sooner rather than later. And especially as the legislative session is developing, we want to ensure that 
we are creating something that's digestible for people to read, um, that's to the point that brings up recommendations. And then also, again, just pushing that let's think outside the box message um, opposed to just, oh, everything should just go to treatment and prevention, right? We, we want to be able to create a dialogue that's going to generate some thought, some thoughts just around how we can be better. Well, and to that end, it's been really interesting to watch when people take the public facing survey or when we had our subject matter experts take it, they identify as a particular realm that they may be coming from. So whether that's a family member, a person who's personally been impacted, law enforcement, emergency medical services, medical or behavioral health, people can identify the spaces from which they come. And it's really just looking preliminarily at the results. It's really interesting to look at so, for example, there may be presumptions about law enforcement would think a certain way versus harm reduction would think a certain way versus a person who uses drugs would think a certain way. And it really is fascinating to me to look and see that, for example, law enforcement, looking at some of the preliminary data that's come through from our subject matter experts, it's not all that different than what those who exist in the harm reduction space want. There isn't this polarization, at least amongst our experts, and we'll see if that carries over into the public opinions too, that is so siloed, right? That would have this, I had a little bit of my own preconceived notion that you know certainly people within the criminal justice system would want this and people within a harm reduction or public health system space would want the X, Y, Z. And it's, I think, going to be really important when we talk to our, our policymakers and, and our communities at large to say, listen, we wanted to see what the broader strokes looked like here. We wanted to see, does law enforcement think it would be okay if we worked on this? Does harm reduction think it would be okay if we worked on that? And and it's, I think has to be done that way because otherwise, and I think a lot of states do this, but I know Utah does this in particular. If folks see conversations coming from other than them or outside of them, they don't even wanna hear it, right? They don't even wanna hear, like, that's not me. That doesn't represent me. I could never think like those people. Yet in reality, we all tend to think a lot of the same things, especially in this space. We all tend to think, hey, what we've been doing in the past hasn't been working. Hey, I've lost somebody that I wish I wouldn't lost. Hey, I see somebody who's really trying to get back on track and everything in the system is just not helping them do that. So uh, it's going to be really important, I think, for the, the white paper to come through with those messages of not, this is just 10 people who have some good ideas. This is a hundred subject matter experts who weighed in and potentially thousands of members of the public. We're already at over a thousand members of the public who've weighed in uh, to say, please give this the consideration that it deserves. Please don't just listen to lobbyists, listen to the people, listen to the experts, listen to the evidence. Lobbyists sell some sexy pitches and they sell some great ideas. I, I get it. This is far too valuable and far too important of an opportunity. We have to lobby for the people and the individuals who have been impacted. Well, in reading over and taking that survey in particular, reading over what's going on, I'm really struck by the opportunity with this $18 million a year for 18 years. And like you said, Sierra, that's not a lot when you try and put your arms around how much it costs to help a person. But 
law enforcement and the courts have these diversion programs. You stay out of trouble, you go this way, we can help you this way. But beyond that, um, people aspire to be better than they are, no matter what their struggles are. So maybe an Aspire program that really gets at underlying um, issues that a person has, because you can go to a detox program and you're back out on the streets in however many weeks. And then you go with what you know to survive. And that's a lot of backsliding for many people because the data shows how many times it takes for somebody to get clean. It's quite a few, right, Jen? Oh, absolutely. And there are, you know, those stories of the person who one or two times at a rehabilitation or treatment option, whatever you want to call it. But by and large, it is a repeated like anything in life, right? Is you want to get good at something, it takes practice and it takes different attempts and different strategies and it takes different paths. And it isn't just A to B. It is a lot of different steps along that way. And those aren't, you know, those aren't negatives for me. Like I, I'm one of those people that has, I don't know if you'd call it unfortunate or fortunate because there's a little both in it, but I've watched, lost my dad to multiple myeloma, a, a really, aggressive, but also chronically relapsing cancer. And I lost my brother to an overdose, also a chronic and relapsing condition. And I watched them both fight like, like their lives depended on it because they did. Right. And I watched them be surrounded by people who fought with and for them and alongside them. And I never once, never once in the 12 years that my dad fought multiple myeloma when his cancer would recur, hear anyone say, well, I guess you just didn't chemo hard enough, did you? I guess you just didn't care enough, did you, to keep your life on track? Nobody would ever say that, right? But you watch what happened with my brother, and I watch it happen now with multiple other community members, and there is very much this like, wow, it's too bad you threw that opportunity away. It's too bad you didn't care enough about your own life. You know, that sort of mentality, which is it's kooky. It's ridiculous. It's disgusting. It's not okay, but it is where we are. And we have got to get, I like that aspire concept. I like that idea of like taking people who are wanting more, who deserve more, who are that valuable that we want to help them on that path to more, build them up, stop tearing them down, build them up. Not saying no accountability. Sure. Uh, Not saying no accountability. Sure. Uh, It is a struggle. It's a struggle to have someone you love um, that you can no longer trust as they go through this either. There are so many factors that go into a person's recovery for themselves, but also as a as a family or friends or coworkers too. So I'm not saying no accountability. No, and I agree with you. It's not about it's not about free passes or um, taking away any accountability. Completely agree with you. But we've got to start from a place of actual compassion and hope for better for folks and stop tearing them down in the process of hoping that they build themselves up. And you asked Sierra about, you know, the AG kind of, and the AG's office and the, that criminal justice space looking at this differently. And I'll tell you, I've watched this state do some really, I think, forward thinking and progressive um, changes at the Davis Behavioral Health Receiving Center that they put together, uh, Chief Tom Ross at the time, now Director Ross at the CCJJ, really put a place uh, in place a program that I think could be replicated across the state where people with nonviolent offenses can be directed toward um, 
not incarceration, not punishment, but improvement opportunities, treatment opportunities, accountability opportunities, but without having to be behind bars and without having to lose a job and without having to be, you know, away from one's family, building up that additional criminal record. Um, I also think that I've, I've seen a really, over the last five years, uh, an increased appetite for harm reduction services to include not just naloxone. This state has really embraced naloxone and we're about to, uh, uh, honestly, about 7,000 times that people have told us that they've reversed an overdose in our communities. Non-medical people have told us this. But understanding that syringe services and understanding that these formerly thought of as kind of ugh, too naughty, too enabling, too not okay spaces are really just points of engagement. If you want to have people know about opportunities for recovery, know about opportunities for better health, you have to have opportunities to engage with them. And that's what I'm watching the state become more and more aware of, more and more okay with. Um, you know, when syringe exchange legislation was first passed in 2016, there were a lot of interesting dialogues in a lot of communities with you know, from rural to urban to all across the spectrum of people's opinions on what it means to give people syringes. And I've watched an evolution and that's kind of what I'm hoping continues to happen is that we listen to each other and that we hear each other's concerns, but we also stick like, stop with the siloing. Let's talk about what we want. And what we want is opportunities for engagement and opportunities for people to get in a better space. And how are things going with naloxone availability? Because I know there were some supply chain issues yeah, so we really had that kind of panic in this summer when we heard that the largest distributor of affordable naloxone, so not the expensive nasal products, but affordable naloxone, the expensive stuff never uh, went away, but the affordable was challenged. And thankfully, our federal partners at SAMHSA, our state partners at DSAMA, our Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, and a, a really amazing mutual aid network across this, the country of other organizations who shared with people who didn't have enough when they needed it. Um, we thankfully have not gone through any period in Utah where we didn't have naloxone. We've had to have some really thoughtful strategies about numbers, you know, for me, I would put all the naloxone everywhere if I could, but that's not been as smart in this time. We have made it through unscathed. I have had to spend more on naloxone than I've ever had to in the past. And I have been willing to do that. Um, spent some rent money on it even because honestly, that's what matters to me. And I think to our state is that people don't pass away when there was a chance not to lose them. Um, and the Pfizer, who's the, the main producer of affordable naloxone is slated to have it back up January. But the silver lining of it all has been that because of that vulnerability that was exposed, there uh, is another company, one, possibly two, that are going to enter the affordable space. So there isn't that vulnerability. Um, the federal government has had an eye opening and realized how important it is to keep community based partners funded and to keep that supply of naloxone available through the community based settings. Not It's not all pharmacies, right? You got to get it out there in the hands of the people who aren't necessarily mainstream plugged in. So Utah is okay. I just received a shipment of 5,000 more doses of naloxone in the mail. So yeah, we can take a little bit of a sigh of relief while also going, man, I wish we still didn't need this. Like I, I would love to be fired. I would love someone to say, 
Hey, you know what? It's been a great run. You did some great work. It turns out we don't need you anymore. Hey, you People could just dying. focus on your day job if we could yeah. get a handle on this. But again, folks, uh, naloxone, also known as Narcan, which if administered in a timely fashion in the wake of an overdose, overdose can reverse it and has saved many lives. Right, Jen? It sure has. It sure has. 7,000 to date, which, you know, coming up on the holidays, that means people that will be around the table if that's your thing or or will be out building the snowman. I hear there's snow coming this weekend or, or <laughs> still here, right? Yeah, right? They're yeah. still here yeah. with us. That's 7,000 times. I mean, those folks didn't have to be memorialized at a funeral. So, you know, we do have a training coming up um, on our Utah Locks on website, uh, the 13th from noon to one, anyone who wants to join, it's a virtual training and anyone who in quotes attends with us, will have kits sent to them. They'll know how to use it. It's completely legal for anyone in this state to have and to administer with liability protections. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for the fact that this state has gone from fourth in the nation for opioid overdose deaths to last numbers, 38th. That's, that's a good up. ranking. That's a good ranking. What's the yeah. website for Utah Naloxone and people can sign up for that training? Yeah, it's at utahnaloxone.org and that's www. Um, we also have, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and that sort of thing. People can email us. They can call us if they have questions. We try to be as available as possible just to get people shepherded into a space where they can save lives. And Sierra, what's the website one more time for the survey on spending this opioid settlement money? We want to make sure people get on and take that. No, absolutely. And thank you for that opportunity. Uh, so it's www. UtahPriorities.org. And Utah just, Opioid uh, Priorities, I think. You, yes. You, I'm so sorry. Yes. Utah Opioid Priorities.org. Um, <clears throat> so that all spelled out. And then you'll be able to just write on the beginning, first page, click here for the survey. There's also some further information about who sits on the, the settlement, Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee. And later, as we close out the survey within the next month or two, we'll have some data to kind of show like where the community stands. So um, we encourage you to keep revisiting it as uh, time goes on. And we'd love to have you both back when you're ready with that white paper, okay? Absolutely. Would love that opportunity. Yeah, thank you so very much. Sierra Gregovich from the Utah Attorney General's Office and Dr. Jennifer Plum of Utah Naloxone. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Jen's organization as well as the survey that Sierra talked about. I hope you'll get involved. And that's the show. Do check out the show notes. You can see a photo collage of everyone who's been on as well as get links to all the organizations, the events, and the causes and requests for help that were issued tonight. Listen when you want, where you want, when you download KRCL's mobile app. We've got the show archived there, but also online at krcl.org. Hope you'll share it and spread the word of Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, going to leave you tonight with a song that I think uh, kind of comes out of our last conversation, something that we all need from time to time, and kind of remember that a little sanctuary from His Golden Messenger on KRCL 90.9. Have a great night, everybody, and thanks for listening.